Thanks very much, Fiuk. Um, I'd just like to talk to you today really about the direct provision system. But, but first, I just want to bring you back uh, to a few months ago uh, when the Taoiseach and uh, Kenny, in an emotional Dáil address, apologised on behalf of the state to hundreds of women who had spent time in Magdalen laundries. It was a heartfelt tribute to women who, as he described it, were blameless, who had been forced to live in the shadows, carrying a deep-set sense of shame that they had done something wrong. If there was any consolation, he said, it was that Ireland was finally giving up its secrets and coming to terms with the state's role in sending many of them there. Today, he said, we live in a very different Ireland with a very different consciousness and awareness. We live in an Ireland where we have more compassion, empathy, insight and heart. It's comforting to think of state-sanctioned mistreatment of citizens as a historic injustice. But each time we express remorse for what happened in the past, there is an implication that somehow we are more enlightened and more humane and, and more sensitive. But on the margins of society, injustice remains. The direct provision system was originally entitled to provide shelter to asylum seekers for just a six-month period. It was a hasty response to a large increase in the number of people seeking refugee status here in the late 1990s. Had it proved possible for the state to deal with uh, asylum applications within a reasonable time frame, it could have been a, an acceptable and humane solution. But today, people seeking refugee status here spend an average of almost four years in conditions that are often bleak, overcrowded and unhygienic. In total, just over 4,600 people, including 1,000 children, live in 34 centres scattered across 17 counties. They are, in effect, locked into a system where adults are not allowed to work or claim welfare benefits, where children are not able to access third-level education, and where the only income is a weekly allowance of €19.10 per adult and €9.60 per child. So what's the reality of life like in these centres? Well, there's some visual images here which were taken uh, by a former asylum seeker himself who'd spent several years in the system. And these photos, you know, a picture often paints a, a thousand words, but there were uh, inspection reports, uh, confidential inspection reports into many of these centres. Uh, by state inspectors and private inspection firms um, who are looking into conditions on a daily basis. And among the issues which they found in these centres were overcrowding with entire families, sometimes as many six, in sharing a single room, uh, residents unable to access showers due to issues with leaks and water pressure, caravans found to have rotting floorboards, blocked emergency exits, fire alarms which weren't working. Uh, the volume of lapses in standards or general maintenance in many of these centres actually took inspectors by surprise. In the case of the old convent in Ballyhonas in County Mayo, which houses 290 residents, inspectors gave the centres 30 days to remedy issues which were repeatedly raised. The inspectors warned that the number of issues highlighted was simply too extensive to catalogue. 
but these photographs are really just a snapshot of the physical conditions in these centres. They don't hint at what life is like on a day-to-day -day basis. Being able to work, to work for years on end and living in institutional-style settings can take a very heavy toll on the mental health of adults. Research in 2005 found that as many as half of men in direct provision centres in the Cork and Kerry area had very poor mental health and many were being prescribed antidepressants or sleeping tablets. Hadik, an Afghani asylum seeker who spent several years in the system, uh, gives some sense of, of daily life when he says, being kept in this kind of environment for several years is similar to being in prison. We feel trapped. All we want is the freedom and rights to enjoy life like any person. I ask that all the people of Ireland imagine for a moment that they were living in this kind of environment with their family for years at a time. Do you think you could accept this kind of situation? And what about the impact on children? For young people, many are growing up in settings where they have never seen their parents go out to work or cook a meal. Children are at least able to attend local schools at primary and secondary level, but friendships and integration are often all the more difficult when there's no money to pay for school trips, for birthday presents, or any other activities. In addition, living in joint accommodation, including in many cases shared bathrooms with people outside of the family circle, gives rise to the danger of abuse. In fact, social services have been alerted to more than 100 child welfare concerns in centres during 2012 alone, as such as young people displaying signs of inappropriate sexualised behaviour. All these centres are required to implement child protection policies as part of the contracts they sign with the state, but often this is not the case. There are examples of young children who've been left to mind infants unsupervised, children being left to play in areas that can be accessed by strangers. If anything, it's the private hostel owners rather than the asylum seekers who have been the real beneficiaries of this system. In all, the state has given almost 800 million euros to private firms for the provision of this kind of accommodation. Every firm is contractually required to comply with legal requirements in relation to health, safety and food hygiene. Many of these companies which provide shelter are large firms involved in the property, the hospitality or the catering business. In many cases, these companies are located in tax havens such as the Isle of Man and the British Virgin Islands. Many have moved to re-register themselves as private unlimited companies, which in effect shields their financial details and keeps their earnings secret. But it is possible to piece together how much individual firms have received from the state. The biggest recipient, for example, is Mosny, formerly known as Mosny Holidays, which has been paid 100 million euros for accommodating asylum seekers at the former Butlins Holiday Resort in County Meath. And just to take a look at this centre, it became an unlimited company in 2012, in effect keeping its financial details secret. Looking at the company accounts, the firm's shareholders are allowed the businessman and a company called El Molino Hotels Limited. El Molino in turn has two shareholders, including an Isle of Man based firm. And latest records from 2009, before it became an unlimited company, show that it was making significant profits. And also in the same year, it was making uh, political donations uh, to Fianna Fáil, among other parties. Uh, 
So what's being done uh, about these conditions and about, these, about this system of accommodation? Well, most agree that it is pointlessly cruel and woefully expensive. Even the current Minister for Justice has said so. In July 2010, when he was in opposition, Alan Shatter compared an aspect of the direct provision system, the set mealtimes, to, and I quote, the type of operation one might apply in prisoner of war camps during a war, not the type of approach that a civilized, democratic, Western European country should apply in any situation. He also added in the same debate that the asylum system was grossly deficient and direct provision subjected asylum seekers to a life of debilitating forced idleness. By October last year, uh, when he was well established as Minister for Justice, he had come full circle. Uh, during a debate in the Shannon, he defended the system and attacked people who were questioning its legality or its fairness, or its unfairness. So why the about turn? Well, there's a confidential 12-page briefing document which was circulated to government ministers uh, at around the time of that debate, providing pointers uh, for uh, and explanations and justification for the system. And it stated, and I quote, leaving aside the considerable difficulty of putting in place alternative reception conditions for those in asylum, for those in asylum already, the biggest concern is the pull factor involved. It said that any changes or improvement in the current system could be abused by asylum seekers in the UK who would seek to come here to avail of a better state provision. So in effect, it was saying that direct provision is a way of keeping asylum seekers out of the country. The minister, it should be said, has, uh, while he has resisted attempts to change the system, he does say that the asylum process itself is being reformed and that people will not have to spend as long uh, in the asylum process uh, such as four years, this is the case. And this legislation is, is finally being promised this year, although these promises have been made on many occasions, in fact, over the past decade. In short, I think it seems very clear that it's just not a political priority and is consistently put at the bottom of the legislative agenda. The fact that many other countries in Europe operate uh, even more punitive social support systems or even detain asylum seekers as a matter of course does not and should not allow Ireland to wash its hands of treating individuals in a dignified manner. There's little doubt that the direct provision shames Ireland as a society. I think we should judge, as uh, Dr. Liam Thornton has said, any standard of state-provided state-provided supports for asylum seekers by the standards of Irish society, not other states, and certainly not the countries of origin that uh, people seeking asylum come from. It's also worth noting that direct provision is by no means the only form of state-sanctioned mistreatment of citizens. We still have thousands of people with learning disabilities living in overcrowded, antiquated institutions which only in very recent months have become subject to independent inspections. We still admit hundreds of teenagers with mental health difficulties to adult psychiatric hospitals every year, even though the state has been warned by its own officials that the practice is inexcusable and counter-therapeutic. And we still place thousands uh, of young people in a care system that is too often chaotic and dangerous. So is it likely then, coming back to uh, Enda Kenny's remarks, 
regarding the Magdalene laundries, that a future Taoiseach in, say, 20 years' time will stand in the doll and apologise for state-sanctioned mistreatment happening in Ireland today? Is it likely that uh, the Taoiseach might say, as he did in relation to the Magdalene laundries and, and, and that era, that Ireland's generous self-portrait was in many respects fictitious, hiding a cruel and pitiless society? Or might a Taoiseach acknowledge that when it came to spending cuts, that services for many of the vulnerable were ruthlessly targeted and disproportionately so? Might a future leader even wonder what was their gross hypocrisy in celebrating the centenary of the state when its values included an unchallenged decree that it allowed society to degrade so many people? And might it most likely end with a formal apology and a solemn pledge that nothing like this would be allowed to happen again? Thanks very much. Um, just before we open to the floor, uh, Carlin, thank you for that. Could you just give us uh, the legal uh, status when, when somebody comes to this country and claim, looks for refugee status or asylum? What actually, what is the, what is the law? Yeah, well, the, the state is obliged under uh, international conventions to provide food and shelter and to basically look after the welfare of every person who comes here seeking asylum. And I think you know, the direct provision system itself was created in a very hasty way to try to, to address that. And it really was a challenge for the government of the time. But the direct provision was always a temporary solution. It was never envisaged that people would spend four, five, six, seven, sometimes even nine years in a system which is very institutional in nature, which strips people of, of uh, much of the dignity that, that you would expect of a, of a state-supported service. And I think that there would be many who would argue that the serve, that the nature of the, the length of time people spend in the system is an abuse of people's human rights and actually would be going against the very spirit of the international conventions which are aimed at uh, protecting asylum seekers coming into this country. You know. <clears throat> and a question, I, 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 I'm, I'm going to bounce at you. Uh, do you have any statistics as to uh, how many, uh, you know, if they spend four, five, six, seven years, how many of them are returned back to where they came from or are, are, yeah. are, are, are given asylum, uh, asylum status in, in Ireland? It's a very small minority get refugee status. I think it's um, um, some, at least 90% in the initial stages fail. But I think the issue with the Irish system is that there, there are numerous processes which you go through. So if you seek asylum and you're rejected, then you appeal. And then if that's unsuccessful, you go through another appeal. So the very nature of that means that people are spending seven, eight, uh, nine years maximum, you know, in a system. And, and the reason they're doing so is because they have appealed their status. You know, if, if people were rejected and that was it, it would be a faster system. But, but our, our system is largely dysfunctional. You know, other states don't have a system like that. You look at countries like Portugal and people's asylum applications are turned around really speedily and there's much more certainty so people aren't spending time uh, in a system with, with no real resolution on the horizon. You know? Okay, we have five minutes before lunch. Any, any questions uh, in, the, um, in the auditorium? There is, there's a gentleman up here. <coughs> um. 
I suppose over the last uh, number of years, there's, and, and, and it's been acknowledged and identified uh, um, over the last couple of days here, the institutional abuse um, that has happened uh, in, in the present state particularly. Um, and there's been apologies, as you, uh, as you pointed out. So, and yet, we know, and you've pointed out, the, the ongoing conditions that people are living in, whether it's refugees, uh, people with disability, people with uh, mental illness, um, young people in care, over 100, as I understand it, died in our time. What is the, the continuing um, factors to give rise to, to this situation or this, this way of dealing with uh, uh, or responding to these human situations? I answer that, yeah. Um, it's a very good question, you know. Um, I think there's one thing that unites all of those categories of people, whether it's people with disabilities, young people in care, and, and uh, are people in the asylum process, and is that they are among the most marginalised of people, that there, isn't, uh, there aren't interest groups, strong interest groups that represent them, and there's no political capital to be made for, for uh, the government in, in addressing those situations. And uh, that's, that's one thing. And the other thing is, I suppose, that you know, when you look back historically, you know, we, we always rationalised the mistreatment of people. You know, whether it was industrial schools, they were seen as a very rational response to uh, a dilemma of the time of, of what to do with, with children who were uh, offending and when there was nowhere else for them to go to. Similarly with Magdalene laundries where there was such societal stigma against unmarried mothers. And, uh, and I think you know, the danger is that you know, we, we will always try to rationalise these things, but I think ultimately we've got to look back towards uh, human rights protection as being the guiding principle here, you know, not societal norms or attitudes which can legitimise kind of mistreatment. And, uh, and I think, you know, human rights sometimes kind of dismissed as something that's kind of quite aspirational and airy-fairy, yeah, and, and something that isn't a political priority, really, to be honest. But uh, I think that ultimately citizens have to start um, demanding this, you know, demanding that human rights are respected and, and looking beyond, you know, just, just the, the current issues. And it's another issue with the political system as well, I think, that, you know, you have governments elected for five-year terms, you know, so everything is short-term. Oftentimes there's no uh, longer-term view looking at tackling many of these issues, which require, you know, sometimes generational, uh, structural kind of changes to ensure that people's rights are respected. So I think it's, it's complex, but there's, there's a lot of reasons uh, underlying that, which are rooted in that sense that there, there really isn't political capital to be made in actually addressing uh, that kind of mistreatment, you know. Yeah, the question is a question down here. There's two here. Thanks, Aoife. I was, at, I was at the butt end of Alan Chatter's withering response to a motion in the Shannon that he mentioned, and uh, I felt quite humiliated, even though, and we lost the vote by a lot in terms of revisiting the whole issue of direct provision. Well, I just, something, some things seem to be glaringly obvious. Time and again we hear about granny farmers and we hear about the types of companies who are all too willing to exploit government contracts and we hear about inspectors and it seems to me that if people want to inspect things properly they ought to do it regularly and therefore they, they might not be so surprised and that in fact 
With all due respect to the people who genuinely do care and who genuinely do want to do something about it, if one wants to do anything, one has to be completely certain from the outset that it's not going to be token. And all, the, all aspects of, of this should be reviewed. Thank you. Um, just following up on your own remark, Fiuk, a moment ago about the, uh, your experience in the Senate hearing Shatter, Alan Chatter. If I go back to Carl, your uh, quotation from him a few years ago when he was in opposition, if I work on the assumption that that was genuine, that he meant that, um, I'm trying to understand what it is that makes him give such a, 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 a go in total contradiction to that when he's standing up as a minister. And my question really is, do they, be, do, do they, do they change their minds or are there other influences that force them to give answers like this? Um, one might be somebody says, we can't afford to improve it. We're strapped because of the uh, triumvirate here or we're strapped because we don't have the money. So, you know, is an, econo an economic argument going to be forced on a minister who might in his heart still believe what he believed a few years ago, but has to toe some party line? Or alternatively, is there some lack of belief that there is political capital to be made, as I would have thought there would be, to take to respond to the voice of the dispossessed. You know, and that human rights would have some uh, uh, courage in this country, and I wonder. Well, it's, it's, it's a repeating pattern, isn't it? You know, um, and I suppose politics is a cynical game. It's very easy to throw stones and to criticize when you're in opposition, and then suddenly when you're in government, you know, the, the dilemmas of budgets and everything else come into to mind. And uh, I think he's done himself great disservice, you know, by the, the nature of the about turn, you know. I think there there is a way of reviewing the system if he really wanted to and, and looking at what meaningful, better alternatives are there that could be provided you know, within reasonable budgets, you know, that's uh, that would be very simple to do. But I think particularly, you know, creature, uh, ministers become uh, controlled a lot of the time by the permanent government of civil service, you know, who are really in many times dictating policy and uh, and that permanent government is always there. The ministers will come and go, uh, but I, I think that it takes a lot of persuading, you know, for uh, ministers to actually go against official advice and actually have the courage to stand up uh, and the courage to stand up for their convictions and to, to push for things which may not get you a, a huge number of votes but certainly I think would, would stand to someone's character in the longer term but um, I think yeah. that's the cynicism of the political process unfortunately. I mean there's a couple of process, there's a couple of issues one is uh, do we are we prepared as a nation to accept asylum seekers into this country uh, what is a real asylum seeker, what isn't, who's, who's chancing their arm, who isn't. They're all, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming one can find a way of dealing with all that. The issue that which Carl quite eloquently, but it, some of these decisions take seven, eight, nine years, and ultimately the damage is for the thousand, one thousand, did you say, children 
in the system. And I visited uh, a, 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 what's called bizarrely an Orwellian language, the reception centre very close outside in Athlone, very next door almost to the Department of Education. Uh, and I saw that. So it's, it's it, there are extraordinary bizarre in the way that Roddy Doyle yesterday spoke about extraordinary bizarre uh, uh, issues uh, uh, Bouncing up against each other, you know, if it weren't uh, if it weren't true, it'd be funny, you know, and that's that's one of the issues there. So one final question, and then we. We'll, uh Thank you. Thank you very much. I think in general, as a country, we're very um, um, bad at looking at other jurisdictions and how they uh, function and learning from them. And you mentioned Portugal and that they have a faster turnover for the applicants, and I just wondered. How they how how they go about it? You know, could we learn from that? Could we take something from that at least to have a faster turnover? And my second question is because I don't know, and I don't know if anyone else does. Don't know how familiar people are with this. Uh, how exactly do they deal with asylum seekers in the UK with regard to housing them and you know providing for their needs sure. as compared to ourselves? Thank yeah. you. Like the, the Portuguese system, it's much faster. But it has its critics as well. People say the asylum applications are turned around too fast, you know, that there isn't adequate consideration of them. But at least you have certainty with it, you know. So Portugal is by no means perfect, but it's another example maybe to look at. And in the UK, um, it's quite different. You, you effectively, um, for in most cases, not all, but in most cases, you get access to private rented accommodation and you get uh, rental, eff effectively rental uh, allowance or rent support. Um, so it's a much less institutional setting because people have a freedom and choice and also people are able to access the ver various state services as well. But it's very interesting, there, there was a High Court case last year in Northern Ireland and it related to a Sudanese family who had gone from the Republic where they had sought asylum initially and been in, in the system for years and they went to the North because they felt that, you know, well, they might actually be able to seek asylum there and get a faster turnaround with their application. And when the UK authorities um, took uh, that decision into account, they tried to return the couple back to the Republic because under asylum rules, that what you, that's what you do. You go back to the initial country where you sought asylum. But the, the High Court actually quashed the order returning the couple back into the Republic because they felt that it would be inhumane to return that family back into the direct provision system in Ireland, you know? So that you have the UK, UK's court system effectively criticizing you know, the humanity or lack of thereof in the Irish system really is kind of spoke volumes. You know. And on that image, yeah. I think we'll, uh, we'll go to lunch. Just want to, if you could extend a great appreciation for a fantastic investigative journalist and uh, Carl O'Brien. <laughs> <laughs>